come into this place that aspires to radical hospitality. Whether you believe in God or gods or goddess or goddesses, whether you believe all of the time or some of the time or none of the time, you are welcome here. No matter what body brought you here, you are welcome. You are welcome no matter who you love. Welcome to First Unitarian Church of Albuquerque. I'm the Reverend Bob Lavalley, and I'm delighted to be here with our worship leader, Judy Gehring, and our intern, Matt Partridge Villarreal, who also is sharing today's Time for All Ages. Reverend Angela is on leave, but she did write today's sermon, and that sermon will be preached by Kristen Satterley. Our Zoom DJ today is our tech arts director, Chris Paul, the indispensable Chris Paul. And our tech team is Arnie Golarud, Raymond Wolfgang, Barry Clark, Erica Johnson-Jimenez, Pamela Livingston, and Cheryl Romanek. Thank you all so much. It really does take a village to make worship happen. If this is your first or second visit, I invite you to share your name and location in the chat so we can say hey. And in the meantime, Judy has some announcements. Good morning, everybody. We have three announcements this morning. Music today is provided by Albuquerque's own Giovanni String Quartet. They have been performing throughout New Mexico since 2005. The quartet has provided music for everything from U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Hallen's wedding to Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller's inauguration. The musicians are Shane Sinegar and Jessica Rettan, violins, Carl Winokur, viola, and Anastasia Neos, cello. Once again, scammers are impersonating our ministers, this time via phone text. Once more, and with spirit, your ministers will never ask you personally for money or gift cards. The church will be closed on Tuesday, March 8th, as the staff take a badly needed wellness day. Please hold any contacts with the staff until Wednesday. Our chalice lighting this morning, Renewing Faith, a Call to Worship by the Reverend David Brindin. We ask, What's the point? To renew our faith, to renew our trust, that our world is enough, that we are enough. We ask, what's the point? To remind ourselves that loving our world and each other is our way. We ask, what's the point? To renew our faith, that loving choices create a loving life.
My name is Kodiak. And I'm Corbett. Please join us in the children's affirmation. We are Unitarian Universalists. We are people of faith with open minds, loving hearts, and helping hands. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Our time for all ages today is entitled Our Place in the Cosmos by Erica A. Hewitt. We humans have always looked up at the stars, wondered about them, and even told stories about them. During the many thousands of years that human beings have been looking up at the stars, we've changed our understanding of what the universe looks like and how it works. More than 500 years ago, a man named Nicholas Copernicus was born in Poland. He watched the stars and planets and used his observations to come up with a pretty unique and upsetting idea. In his day, most people thought that the Earth was at the center of the universe. They also thought that the stars were little holes in a glass ball around the Earth. Copernicus thought, what if the universe doesn't move around the Earth? What if the Earth is actually a planet circling the sun? He wrote a book about this idea, which wasn't popular. If he hadn't died soon after, it's possible he would have been put in jail. Today, we know that Copernicus was right. Our planet Earth circles the sun, which is a star. It took a long, long time, hundreds of years, for people to finally believe this and to stop saying that the Earth was at the center of the universe. But for hundreds of years, the belief that the universe revolved around Earth was so stuck in people's minds that it became part of religion, too. It was a kind of religious belief. So when Copernicus said, I don't think the heavens revolve around the Earth, he was speaking as a scientist, but the church heard it as challenging their religion. There's a word for that. Heresy. That meant that not just scientists, but anyone could get in big trouble for promoting the idea that the sun was at the center of our solar system. Now, believe it or not, this upsetting theory of Copernicus intersects with the story of our Unitarian ancestors. Not very far away from where Copernicus watched the planets and stars, there was a land called Transylvania, a land of rolling green hills and mountains. Transylvania is where some of the first Unitarians built their churches and formed their faith, right about the same time that Copernicus wrote his book about the Earth revolving around the sun. Our Unitarian ancestors already knew what it was like to say and believe things that could get them in trouble. One of those things was Edge Oz Ishten, or God is One. When they, and we, say God is One, we're saying that we don't agree with the Christian doctrine that Jesus was God incarnate. We're saying that he was fully human. A lot of Unitarians in Transylvania and elsewhere 
died because they wouldn't stop believing or saying that. One of the villages in Transylvania, which is today a part of Romania that is ethnically Hungarian, is Oakland. Its Unitarian Church is over 400 years old. Like a lot of Transylvanian Unitarian churches, the church has a wooden ceiling that's divided into deep square panels. Most of them have flowers or plants painted on them. But there's one very special ceiling panel, a sun surrounded by circling planets. It is a diagram of the Copernican solar system. In Blessing the World, Rebecca Parker writes, Holy regard for knowledge is at the heart of our religious faith. At a time when religion was opposing science, our ancestors in the remote mountains and valleys of Transylvania built sanctuaries that affirmed the discoveries of science. They did so even when the dominant religious culture advocated ideologies that allowed no new revelation. Let us celebrate these gifts which have been woven into our religious DNA. We belong to a tradition in which religion and science have never been forced apart or asked each other to be silent. We, as a people, encourage one another to explore and discover, to ask questions, and declare that revelation is not sealed and will never be sealed, and to freely follow the call whatever its source that connects us most deeply to the world inside of us and to the universe around us. Let's pause the chat for a few moments during the meditation and prayer. <clears throat> As you take this time to find a comfortable position, focus on your breath, I want to bring us into this moment of reflection and meditation with the words of Reverend Leslie Yahuva Fails. All that we have been separately and all that we will become together is stretched out before and behind us like stars across a canvas of sky. We stand at the precipice arms locked together like tandem skydivers, working up the courage to jump. Tell me, friends, what have we got to lose? Our fear of failure? Our mistrust of our own talents? What have we got to lose? A poverty of the spirit? the lie that we are alone? What wonders await us in the space between the first leap and the moment our feet, our wheels, however we move our bodies across this precious earth, touch down softly on unknown soil? What have we got to lose that we cannot replace with some previously unimaginable joy? 
Blessed are you, spirit of life, who has sustained us, enlivened us, and enabled us to reach this moment. Give us courage in our leaping and gratitude in our landing. And share with us in the joy of a long and fruitful ministry together. Carrying these words with us, let us now transition into an observance of sacred silence together. Our church is a welcoming community where we find connection, a spiritual community where we find meaning. Our church is a sharing community where our joys are amplified, a caring community where our sorrows are lessened. We take this moment to reflect on our joys and sorrows and acknowledge the mutual support of our community. Please type in the chat box, first your joys and then your sorrows. If you're unable to write in a chat box, please email the church at caring at uuabq.org. And may we remember those who have spoken, those they have named, and those we hold in silence in our hearts. gonna take time
gonna take time Hey You're doing okay It's gonna take time It's gonna take time The heart is a muscle contracting, expanding Feel the waves and learn the lessons Time It's gonna take time The heart is a muscle contracting, expanding Feel the waves and learn the lessons Time It's gonna take time great and powerful spirit of life and love who goes by many names and takes many forms. We look to you as you help guide us along this great story that is life. We take this moment on the journey to stop, to rest, to bring our joys and concerns to you. 
We are grateful for all of the blessings that make appearances in our lives from the mundane to the grandiose. We are especially thankful this day for snow in the foothills, for family, for community, the arrival of spring, hiking, and grandchildren. And we come to you with concerns for our greater world, especially those all over the world who are in the midst of violent conflict and have been displaced from their homes. For Palestine, for Yemen, for Afghanistan, for the Rohingya in Myanmar, and for Ukraine. We lift them up to you in the hope that the promise of peace may shine in these lands and for all those affected. And closer to home, we pray for those in our church community, for Shirley Daney, who passed away recently, for Ed Walhagen, for Martin Malecki, who is having spinal surgery on March 8th, and for Bruce Little. We continue to pray for this church as it continues to navigate this time of transition. And we especially pray for our senior minister, Reverend Angela Herrera, as she is on leave at this time. We pray for all of the unhoused in our community who struggle to find shelter, especially as the weather gets colder. We pray for those who struggle with hyperinflation and rising rent prices who are unsure if they will have a home to come to. We pray for all of those who struggle with and are affected by addiction in all of its many forms. And we pray for all of those, especially in this time of pandemic, who struggle with anxiety, burnout, and other issues related to mental health. May our community surround all of them with the light and love that they need and that they deserve. All of these we lift up to the great powers of healing and renewal known by many names. May we all continue to be safe. May we all continue to find love and support. May it ever continue to be so. Amen and blessed be. And peace be with you.
Wasn't that beautiful? We are truly blessed to be able to sit and listen to this music with what's going on in the world. Our reading this morning, The Wind is Bearing Me Across the Sky by Victoria Sanford from her collection, Walking Toward Morning. A few years ago, a friend of the family had great gravity of need. His partner in life was leaving and his four teenage children, who he held as babies and loved and raised all this time, had all but stopped speaking to him. Did you know that disaster literally means falling star? He asked us at one point. One night, in the midst of the maelstrom of asters crashing all around, he called to tell us about an anonymous note someone had mailed to his bakery. Hey guys, listen to this note that someone sent today. Sir, you have saved my life with bread. Thank you, an old friend. Our friend was silent for a long, long while. We had a machine that allowed deep silences. It would not disconnect a caller lost momentarily in reverie or caught in contemplation. Then came his voice again asking, as if we could answer through the tape. What do you think of that? He was quiet, then said, it makes me think of an old Jijue song, the song of the bird. Sometimes I go about in pity for myself, and all the while the wind is bearing me across the sky. Good morning. Reverend Angela is on leave this Sunday, so she provided us a sermon on faith that she preached in December of 2013. Though the headlines have changed in the years since then, the message is still relevant. By now, your experience of life will have revealed that you cannot count on a benevolent, all-powerful, all-knowing God to answer your prayers as you wish, to mete out justice, or to make sense of your life for you. Life is just too random. This week, our food pantry handed out 99 bags of food to people who came and waited in a line that was so long it wound through the church courtyard. Many of those people were barely scraping by on food stamps and are now receiving fewer due to government cutbacks. And this week I, remember today I is Angela, not Kristen, sat down with the Director of Refugee Programs for Lutheran Family Services in Albuquerque. She helps 150 refugees start new lives in New Mexico each year, people who have been granted residency in the U.S. because of persecution in their home countries. One of the most common countries is Afghanistan. She collects donations to set up complete apartments, dishes, towels, shampoo, beds, light bulbs, can openers, everything for people who arrive with nothing and have to rebuild their lives. And she connects them with volunteers who will be their first friends. This week, I met with a minister who runs an HIV prevention program with Planned Parenthood because there are still over 100 new cases per year of HIV in New Mexico. And this week, I visited with several people who are living with mental illnesses, either their own or their loved ones. You could say that this all represents a lot of misfortune. 
No one deserves to be hungry, to lose their country, or to have HIV or mental illness. And that's just what I encountered in one week, and that's just outreach. It does not include the pastoral care I provide for our own members. We are not immune to bad luck. Many of you know this on a deeply personal level. You have already experienced it or are experiencing it. All of us live with that truth, with the truth of our own vulnerability. Maybe we're not tuned into it all the time. It's scary to be vulnerable and mortal, and so in good times we keep that knowledge contained somewhere in the backs of our minds. It's the kind of thing that sneaks up on us once in a while, maybe at 3 a.m. when we can't sleep. Has that happened to you? Dread and anxiety in the middle of the night? What a bad feeling. We control what we can, but there's a lot we can't control. All of us go through times in life when we feel almost as though the very ground beneath us is unreliable, when we feel lost or tossed around in a storm. And these things can cause a crisis of faith. But what do we mean by that? What is faith? It has some iffy connotations, like faith as a suspension of thinking, like don't ask so many questions, just have faith, or blind faith in a person or institution, or sometimes it's used as a synonym for religious tradition. We speak of our Unitarian Universalist faith. This refers to our religious outlook. For example, our belief that many of the world's traditions contain wisdom, that if there is a God, that God is too big to limit to one set of creeds, and that while we don't know what happens in the next life, this life is important. Those are all important things, but when your personal world is unraveling, they're too abstract to be of much use. Then what we need is a personal kind of faith. All of the world's major religions, when you see through the ritual and stories, contain a heart that addresses the reality of human suffering and transience. Buddhism is an especially good example. Those of us who have only really been exposed to American Buddhism might be surprised to know that when you travel to predominantly Buddhist countries, the tradition is not pared down to just the simple meditation practice we are acquainted with here. It does include elaborate rituals, metaphor, and imaginative stories, but what makes it unique and what made it so adaptable to American culture is that at its core, it is quite plain spoken and its core tenets can be experienced firsthand. Those tenets are based on thousands of years of observations that are applicable not just to Buddhists, but within the framework of other religions as well. On the subject of personal faith, I find it especially insightful. So in preparation for this sermon, I return to one of my favorite books, Faith by Sharon Salzberg. Salzberg has been a Buddhist for about 40 years and is a renowned teacher. I'm going to draw a lot from her teaching today. Salzberg writes that in Pali, the language of many Buddhist texts, the word for faith is sadha, which means to place the heart upon. To place the heart upon. Unlike faith as a religious outlook or as something you either have or don't, in Buddhism, it is a verb to place the heart upon. We don't have faith, we faith. Now, I'm still going to use it as though it were a noun here because there's no equivalent verb in English, but this is the kind of faith I'm talking about. Not unthinking or blind or vague faith, but an active faith, the verb kind, faithing, 
placing the heart upon. This kind of faith is a practice. It comes from a truth that is within us, but is also larger than ourselves. That there is indeed something we can put our faith in, something we can place our hearts upon. But in order to understand it, we have to understand our own nature, the deepest truth about who and what we are. So, who and what are we? Early in our lives, we are defined by our parents. When we're infants, they're our world. You didn't even know you were separate from your parents until they and the world had been speaking your name to you for many months. Later, when we are adolescents, we may define ourselves by our friends, our feelings, and our tastes. Then as adults, by our accomplishments and roles as worker, leader, parent, spouse, or perhaps by a particular talent or an activity that we love. Along the way, we collect memories, and these are integrated into the sense of self. When we say, I, we are speaking of all of these things. The person who was defined by their parents, friends, feelings, and tastes, then accomplishments and roles. I did those things. But the problem with those identities is that they aren't permanent. What happens when we discover, as young people must, that our parents are human? Even if they are extraordinary ones, this is a demotion from the benevolent deities we thought they were or wished they could be. What happens when we're teens and the people we thought were our friends reject us? Or when we're fired from the job that was who we are? Or we lose the spouse who was so key to our identity? Or when something we accomplished is discarded because the next big thing has come along? Faith begins by acknowledging that the nature of our lives and of the world is change. Everything is changing, passing away, leading into something else. This is true about the things that structure our days, about relationships, and about feelings. We may be cheerful in the morning, cranky in the afternoon, and pensive at night. We may feel spiritually fulfilled and at peace one moment, then tormented or alone the next. All that lies outside of us is also in flux. People and things come and go. Institutions rise and fall. Buildings are built, monuments to the human spirit, but they don't last forever. Even the Sandia and Magdalena and Oregon Mountains are wearing away in the wind. Now, and this is important, what happens is when we cling to what was never permanent, we are not able to be fully present to our lives. Buddhism observes that our attachment to what was never meant to be permanent is a major source of suffering and shuts us down to the fullness of our lives. So Buddhists and people of all religions who appreciate Buddhist philosophy practice non-attachment. I'm gonna be honest with you, I've always had a hard time with that teaching, the part about clinging. I've studied Buddhism formally, graduate school, and informally through self-study and practice. I had a Buddhist graduate school advisor, a Buddhist internship advisor, and a UU Buddhist minister back in the congregation I belonged to in Oregon. I took a Buddhist scriptures course and one on Buddhist pastoral care for the phase of life that we call dying. Buddhism clearly has a philosophy and its followers have a manner of being, 
that I am drawn to. And yet, I always had a hard time with one of its core principles, the need to let go of attachments. I like my attachments, I thought. I'm attached to my children, to my vocation, to poetry and music and shoes. Why shoes? I don't know. I think I was born that way. I thought letting go of attachments meant trying to not enjoy the things I love or that it meant loving them less. And I thought, even if the things I love are transient and losing them will someday certainly cause me suffering, it's worth it because I love them so much. I love life with all of its teeming, noisy, beautiful, transient things. I have a fierce love of life. It seemed worth the risk. I was afraid that letting go of attachments would mean not loving life, that it would mean trying to be neutral toward life. But now I know that nothing could be further from the truth. In Buddhism, being attached to something or someone is not the same as loving it. To love is to show up fully, to take something into your heart and to give yourself to it. To be attached is to be unable to let it go after it is gone. I'll say that again. To love is to show up fully, to take something into your heart and to give yourself to it. To be attached is to be unable to let it go after it is gone. Attachment makes us unable to let go. When we are attached, instead of letting go, we may rage against the absence of the thing or person or status or ability we have lost. We may obsess over it, asking why me, or even turn against ourselves, wondering what is wrong with us that this change has occurred. We may run again and again through daydreams of the ways we could have prevented the loss. And in the process of all this effort, we stay, all this effort to stay attached. We are in tunnel vision mode. We don't see what else is happening around us. We only see the loss or our anger over it. Like the person who experiences a crime or trauma committed against them and is angry that it happened and who keeps wishing they could rewrite the past. So much so that they don't notice the present anymore. Don't notice how their experience has opened a door for them to connect with others, or to receive love and compassion, or to help someone else going through the same thing. Nothing can make a bad experience good, but being awake to the present can allow it to at least be meaningful, can allow your life to be meaningful, and to not be defined by the bad thing. I'm speaking in generalities here, but I am speaking from experience. Salzburg tells a story of a Buddhist teacher who shows her class a piece of paper with a bird drawn on it and asks what it is. It's a bird, replied the students. No, says the teacher. It's the sky with a bird passing through it. We have the capacity to choose to stay present to our lives, to see the larger picture and to see it in gorgeous detail. This doesn't mean we don't feel sad or angry. Those are appropriate feelings when we experience a loss. But the suffering that comes from fighting reality and grasping at something we cannot hold on to, that suffering diminishes. By accepting the reality of what is, even though we don't like it, we cultivate awareness of the present. We tune in. 
we show up to our lives fully instead of dwelling in the past. Showing up fully to life is the best way to demonstrate your fierce love for it. Though usually, even in good times, we make ourselves too busy to be fully present. I think of the words of the Sufi mystic Rumi, who wrote, Sit down and be quiet. You are drunk, and this is the edge of the roof. When we go through life depending on impermanent things for our sense of peace and stability, all the while at the brink in any given moment of an experience that will shatter our peace, it is though we are drunk on an illusion and we are standing at the edge of the roof. Faith, the verb, begins with awakening to this reality and then paying attention, presence. In the depths within us, there is a quiet place, a boundless source of love and peace that can enable us to live fully, to live well, no matter the circumstances. The question is, will we allow ourselves to explore it and access it? Will we honor that capacity within ourselves or will we shrink back from our own potential? In her book, Salzburg tells a story about the Buddha. Before his enlightenment, when he was still just a man named Siddhartha Gautama, he aspired to become a Buddha, which means an awakened one. His goal was that his enlightenment should somehow help relieve all beings of suffering. He'd been trying for years and had tried many different methods to attain understanding of the ultimate nature of life and of the universe without success, but he could not be dissuaded. In fact, he became more determined than ever. And so one night he sat down under a tree and decided he would not move until he had finally achieved enlightenment and was free of confusion, ignorance, and limitation. I don't know how many times he had tried this before. It's possible this wasn't the first. He was human. He meditated as he had definitely done before and soon he found himself under attack by the demon known as Mara. Mara represents unskillfulness and the death of spiritual life. Mara tried to distract Siddhartha with seductive visions, storms, and then frightening and disgusting images. But Siddhartha persisted. Mara tried to shake Siddhartha by challenging his worthiness. Mara asked him, basically, who do you think you are to be sitting there with that immense aspiration what makes you think you can actually be enlightened? In response, the Buddha reached down and touched the earth with his hand, asking it to bear witness to all the lifetimes in which he had practiced generosity and morality, loving kindness and wisdom. He asked the earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting there, his right to aspire to full understanding and infinite compassion. With that, Mara was defeated. It is significant, Salzburg writes, that Mara attacked Siddhartha's sense of worth. How many of us see great spiritual beings and think, I could never be like that. I'm not wise enough. But you do not have to be a Buddha in order to be present to your life, in order to find out what it is you can place your heart upon, in order to grow in faith. In fact, it is taught in Buddhism that the Buddha himself did not attain enlightenment by any kind of superhuman ability, but just through the power of awareness that is inherent in every one of us. You are capable 
worthy, and wise enough to live your life well with meaning and love, no matter what happens to you. In fact, if life were easy all the time, it might slip right past you without you ever discovering its true nature. The poet Mark Nepo compares the effect of hardship on the soul to the effect of gravity on the body. He writes, as astronauts spend time in space, weightlessness causes muscle atrophy. With little or no resistance required to move, their muscles and bones harden and retract. Astronauts in their 30s can return to Earth with the bone density of people in their 70s. Specific biological and chemical reactions cause this, but in our conversation with the elements, we can perceive something deeper, that yearn as we do to shed the weight of the world. We need to be in the world to realize our dreams. Just as too much gravity is oppressive and crushing, the loss of gravity doesn't free us, but causes us to atrophy and disintegrate at an accelerated rate. Paradoxically, the only way to make it through the weight of the world is to stay in the world. I'll repeat that. The only way to make it through the weight of the world is to stay in the world. Stay in it. Stay present. You are capable, worthy, and wise enough to live your life well with meaning and love no matter what happens to you. That is what you can have faith in. And you can have faith in its flip side, that life is meaningful and you are held in a love larger than yourself. We all are. A love larger than yourself that is made up of your spiritual ancestors who came before you, including Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, and your great-great-grandparents who lived into the same universal truths as you are. And it is made up of the ones who will come after you, who, though they may not even realize it, will experience the rippling effect of your life, the effects of your faith in action. And the larger love that holds you is made up of the people who love you now, the people whose faith carries you through when yours wavers, the people in your personal life and the people in this church. Some say the source of that larger love is God, from whom it flows through all of us and who walks with us in that way all our lives. For the Buddhists, the love just is. It is the nature of being. However you understand it, may you experience that larger love in its fullness. May it surround you, bless you, and keep you in all that is your journey. The oil in our chalice. The light of our chalice will soon flicker and die without the oil that nourishes its flame. And just as this flame cannot burn without oil, this religious community cannot survive or thrive without the financial as well as personal support of its members and friends. The oil that keeps the flame of our liberal religious faith alive and fuels the shared mission of this ministry 
of this fellowship. Our Change for the Future organization for March, April, and May is the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico, providing advocacy, education, and direct services in support of transgender, gender nonconforming, non-binary, and gender variant people and their families. You can make an offering online by clicking on the link that we'll put in the chat box. And if you prefer not to give online, you can simply mail a check to the church and include change for the future on the memo line. Let us now give freely and generously an offering to sustain and strengthen our shared religious community, a community of memory, hope, faith, and love. For we are now the keepers of its flame that burns for justice, its dream of beloved community, its vision of a world made whole.
What is given in generosity is received in gratitude. Thank you on behalf of First Unitarian Church of Albuquerque and our Change for the Future Recipient Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. We are coming to the end of our service, but if you would like to stay on and have a chat with your fellow sibling congregants, we would love it if you would. Please stay on after the credits and we will place you in one of our breakout rooms. To get the discussion started, here is a discussion question to consider. Uh, it's kind of a two-pronged question. What does faith mean to you and how do you embody faith in your life? What does faith mean to you and how do you embody faith in your life? Before we go and extinguish our chalice, I invite you to navigate your screens to gallery view and look at all of the wonderful smiling faces that are here in this moment and let us extend our pacham greeting to each other. Place one hand over your heart, extend the other out to the gallery, making eye contact as is comfortable. Let's extinguish our chalices. May we always remember that the wind is bearing us across the sky. Go in peace and practice radical love. <laughs>